0: Welcome to The Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan.
1: Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other.
0: We're The Reframers. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Reframers. I'm Erin.
1: Hello. Welcome. I'm Zach. Hey everybody,
2: it's Cassie. We're so glad you're here. Today, we're going to talk about kind of an interesting topic.
1: This week, we are going to discuss climate change. So ever present these days. Um, This is also new ground for us. And we're excited to talk about it with you guys today.
0: And I think we're going to be focusing a lot on climate policy, like what makes sense as far as legislation, treaties, that kind of thing goes. Um, and you know, I, I also want to talk about technology too, like what what kind of things does it make sense for us to be focusing on investing in?
1: Definitely. And um, this probably will not be the only episode we'll do on climate change. There's many different areas that you can go with this. So this, you know, consider this the first of probably several that we'll do um, throughout our. recordings. So um, yeah, hope you enjoy. Thanks for tuning in today.
0: All right, Zach, did you find anything about the founders and what they may have thought about things like climate policy?
1: Why does that make me
2: laugh?
0: So hard. Yeah, but this Um, is what we start with. So
1: (laughs) yeah, right. Like we usually like to do, we like to give some kind of historical context, uh, you know, what's, you know, anything in the founding documents that that relates to our weekly topic? And um, no, Aaron, I I did <laughs> not. It seems like at the time the earth was um, untouched, this Garden of Eden that really just provided everything and there was no concern for any of this kind of stuff. So, no, I, I don't have anything in terms of like the founders considering climate at all in terms of policy or government structure
0: yeah i agree i mean the closest thing would just be creating legislation right like giving congress the ability to create legislation and then um treaty power with the executive so but yeah it's i mean right this is not like an issue at the founding so i think that that makes sense i didn't find anything either something i did want to mention that i thought was kind of interesting is that we have i do think that in the united states we Have prioritized nature in a lot of ways. Our national park system is a good example of that. So, Theodore Roosevelt, who was the president from 1901 to 1909, signed legislation establishing five national parks. So, he was kind of the father of the national park movement. He also had even more legislation than that that um, enabled him to do like historical landmarks and structures and that kind of thing. And that also kind of extended the uh, national parks to things like Montezuma Castle and Devil's Tower and the Grand Canyon, like these places that we really value now um, nature-wise. And that's not exactly related to climate policy, but I think it's interesting to think about how we've protected our environment in the past, ways we wanted to preserve it.
1: Definitely. And, And beyond even, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, in the West, we have so many of our schools and streets and towns named after John Muir and John C. Fremont. And apparently if you care about the environment, your name has to be John. But that's like a big legacy for us out here is, you know, we have streets named after like the founders and the presidents, and then we have streets and and cities and schools named after environmentalists.
0: Um, Okay. So I thought it might be also interesting just to mention real quick, some of the big legislation that has happened in the past, as far as You know the environment and and not really climate, but just how we protect our Earth in the United States, at least. Um, So the EPA, which you've probably heard of, is the Environmental Protection Agency. This is the agency; it's under the executive branch, so it's part of the bureaucracy under the executive. This is the agency that kind of monitors and enforces all of our pollution and water management, like those sorts of policies. And now climate change stuff will like falls under the EPA as well. Um, The EPA was created by uh, President Nixon actually in 1970 through an executive order. Uh, And then the other thing that I wanted to mention is just the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water Act was actually enacted in 1948, but it was called the Federal Water Pollution Control Act. But it was really reorganized and expanded in the 1970s. So you'll see a pattern here of the EPA in 1970, and then the Clean Water Act in 1972. The Clean Water Act is a really important one in terms of monitoring pollution. So it has pollution control, it sets wastewater standards, you know, regulates municipal systems, that kind of thing. So that's one of the big pieces of legislation related to combating pollution, you know, the environment kind of in general.
1: And the EPA has a huge influence, right, into what they regulate they do things all the way from business regulations in terms of what you can and can't do in terms of you know waste disposal things like that but also light bulbs and toilets and things like that because those are dealing with energy and water consumption and so the EPA really for being a you know environmental protection agency which maybe sounds a little limited in its scope does have its fingers in a lot of different pies.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. It's definitely one of the most, as far as agencies go, it's probably one of the most influential agencies.
1: Yeah. Cause everything, I mean, it's, you know, automobiles are regulated under the the EPA. Like there's, you know, name an industry and industry and the EPA probably has some regulation regarding that particular industry.
0: Yep. Okay. So do we want to talk about why climate policy is a thing? You know, like what, what are we trying to do here when we talk about climate policy and maybe we should go into climate change a little bit. Sure. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a scientific body that's convened by the United Nations, released a major uh, new report in August of this year. The report is based on the analysis of more than 14,000 studies, and it's studied the physical science of climate change and what the human impact is on climate change. So um, I have five takeaways from the report that I think are interesting. This is from the New York Times. First one, human influence has unequivocally warmed the planet. And I think this is something that has been controversial in the past and is still probably controversial to some people today. But the weight of scientific evidence has shown over and over again that the release of our greenhouse gases, which uh, releases carbon dioxide, is what warms the planet. But this is something that, especially maybe 10 years ago and or even a little bit before that, a lot of people denied that humans had anything to do with causing the earth to warm. I mean, I'm not sure what you guys think about that at this point. I've never really had an issue with the scientific studies on that side. So
1: rationally speaking, I think that humans are obviously the world's most impactful animal. No other animal has been able to affect the world in the way that we have. So I I don't disagree with the fact that humans, by us being here in technology and, and industry, has contributed to a change in in the earth. Where I would maybe have room for debate here at the Reframers pod is whether we are the single driving force of climate change or we we do contribute. I would say for sure we do contribute, but to what extent is, I have no idea. And I would would disagree with the assertion that we are the main and or only contributor to climate change.
0: Yeah, I don't know enough about climate science to say if we're the only contributor. I would think not. But as far as I've seen, I think that humans are very much the driving force behind the warming of the planet. Um, Let me go through, let me finish the rest of these. The other thing that the report showed is that climate science is getting better and more precise, which is really good news. So the UN does these reports. They did um, another one of these climate research reports eight years ago. And in the time between those eight years, we have a lot more observational data, like temperature measurements, data from land instruments, from oceans and space. So we're really able to simulate a lot more of what's going on in the planet. And we have have better data and we're also better at doing this research. So that's some good news. Point three from the report is that we're locked into 30 years of worsening climate impacts, no matter what the world does. The world has already warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius since the 19th century, which is about two degrees Fahrenheit. So the report says that humans have put so much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the warming is going to continue until at least the middle of the century, even if we decrease emissions. And you might hear a lot about 2.5 degrees. This is kind of this like nightmare scenario of if we get to 2.5 degrees, we have all of this other climate change fallout. And so there's a big push right now to make a difference at this point of uh, to try and decrease the greenhouse gases so we can decrease the warming and stay away from this you know, degree increases in um, the planet. But even with that, we're looking at a future right now that is gonna have fallout climate wise in really various parts of the earth. We can talk a little bit more about some of the things we've seen recently. Um, point four is that climate changes are happening, happening rapidly, and they're getting faster. So there's more uh, weather events now than there used to be, and they are becoming more and more. So we're we're seeing that you know these heat waves, the the extreme weather, fires, earthquakes, and, you know all of these sorts of things that are impacted by climate change are happening faster than they used to happen. And then the last thing the report said is that there's still a window in which humans can alter the climate path. Um, And so the report has like five different climate futures. It's interesting. If you have time, you should go look at it, but um, there's sort of these different ways that we can approach it. And that if we are aggressive in our cutting of emissions, we can start to limit warming by, you know, 2040, if we're super duper aggressive, maybe 2050, Um, and kind of keep the degrees where they are, and then hopefully um, get them to go back down. So one of the reasons why climate change has actually been in the conversation recently is because of this report. So this came out just a a month ago, and um, it's been really impactful in the uh, climate change community, but also, you know, there's been some politicians talking about this as well.
1: Um, I think that there is probably room to debate on whether that's the case. I know I, I saw something that was saying researchers examined what it would take to limit global warming to either 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. And that's a, a pretty decent range, you know, and which is it, right? So there's there's a range in all of these things that I think, you know, I'll just come out and say right at the top. I don't like that a lot of the discussion around climate policy is fear and guilt ridden. That's my like kind of main issue. I think that there's sensible legislation that you can take here. I don't like that the government is like beating us over the head with, you have to do these things or else I see it as much more of like a free market innovation type thing, rather than something that's top down mandated. I think that that's part of the the issue I have with a lot of the climate change discussion is there's no room for for debate in terms of, well, what's, what is it, right? You say we have 12 years before it's the point of no return, but is the 12 years cut off at, you know, 1.5 degrees warming, 2 degrees warming, 2.5? Like it's based off of models that may or may not be true. And in fact, there's been discussion and, and claims for the last 50 years that the earth will be ending every 10 years. And, and, it, and it hasn't. I'm not saying that that's Proof positive that it won't. But for the last 50 years, there's been tons and tons of examples of, oh, once this happens, well, there's no turning back. And so anyway, that's, that's a, I'm a little rambly, but I think that that's kind of my initial resistance is a, there's no really room for debate. It's, you know, the claim is 97% of scientists agree. And if you don't agree, then you're somehow morally bad or, or dumb. And then the second is, is that the, tactics used to enforce or to suggest laws are very i think heavy-handed stemming from that.
0: Yeah, I mean as far as the science part of it goes, I don't really know how you argue with the weight of the scientific evidence, I guess. I don't I don't see why there needs to be big debate about that when over 90% of the scientists agree on at least that humans are part of this cause. So, to me I'm like, well yeah. (laughs) Why do we need to like get into the, like, I don't know, like debating whether climate change is real. I, I don't see that being productive at this point because we like have so much scientific evidence to, to show that we have an impact. And even if our impact, like, let's just say our impact is a little less than we think it is. Like, I kind of think who cares? We're still having an impact. We know we have really high emissions and whether you think it's a big whether you think it's the climate change policy or not, we also have a lot of pollution. So like, why not focus it on, yeah, we also want to just decrease our pollution of the world. I just don't I don't I think that debate is over, I guess. It's like we know that we are warming the planet and now we just have to deal with what we do about it.
2: I was just going to bring it back a little bit because I want to focus a little bit on why there is disagreement about this in like a political sphere and in a legislative way. So I thought it was important and interesting that Aaron mentioned that, you know, 10 years ago, this was not something that we all just said, yeah, yeah, we believe the science. Yeah, yeah, we all trust the, the data. And we all believe that the climate is warming and that we as humans have a responsibility to do so Like this is not um, a given 10 years ago. So it is worth mentioning that we're talking about this in a really different time. And even some like young Republicans are trying to push their people to talk about it more and to make um, actionable decisions and legislation in that way that more than maybe the people were before in the Republican party. So I do think that that matters to talk about it. And I think it speaks a little bit to how, um, how it matters, the speed with which we um, take care of things that are like to your comment, Zach, about um, every 10 years, we say like that the sky is like falling and the world's going to end. I think that perhaps true to their name, like conservatives are being conservative. They want to be conservative with their spending. They don't want to do anything too rash. And I was just reading um, a New York times article from, I think it's August. And it just had a lot of really interesting sound bites that I'll share in a moment, but the two things that I kind of pulled out when trying to understand um, the the rationale behind um, my opposite viewpoint is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Zach and Aaron, um, that we, the U.S., are often cited as doing too much when other countries are doing too little and that it shouldn't like be all this weight on the United States to um spend all this money and and cut emissions and you know stop using fossil fuels and things like that when countries like China are polluting out the wazoo. Um so that's one and then the other thing i saw was a lot of people saying that they they the republican voters are more concerned with jobs than with the environment and they favor less aggressive responses um because they're concerned about adding um additional taxes for people to pay for all these expensive investments to um, switch to wind or solar or other clean energy, um, that that would damage the economy. So I just thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about that because that's more like the legislative side. Like if we're all sitting here, like at the table saying, oh yeah, we all agree climate change, blah, blah, blah." what do we do about it? That's where it gets nitty gritty, right? Like people are in serious disagreement about this.
1: So maybe what is the proposed legislation? Like what would you guys suggest the government does here.
2: There is a $3.5 trillion budget package that the Democrats are hoping to pass in the fall. If approved, the measure would be the most consequential climate bill in United States history. It would put the country on track to hit President Biden's goal of roughly having domestic greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, but to get it through the evenly split Congress, every Democrat needs to support it. And at least two Um, Senator Joe Manchin, um, and Kristen Sinema have indicated they might oppose it. Um, Republican leaders, it says in the article, have made it clear that they will vote against the budget bill, arguing that it is too expensive and that mandates like clean electricity standards and a government funded electric vehicle expansion will hurt taxpayers and consumers.
0: Yeah, so I've looked into this. If you've heard of this, this is Biden's infrastructure bill. That's what it's like being colloquially referred to as. And we talked about the filibuster before. The reason why it's in it's called like the reconciliation bill as well. It's some people are calling it that or, or just the budget bill is because it has to go through the reconciliation process because it will not be able to pass with two-thirds to overcome a filibuster. And if they tried to just pass it without budget, budget reconciliation, it would get filibustered. It is interesting. Cassie, you mentioned, it's a $3.5 trillion bill. $150 billion of that is for climate change protection and clean energy. So a significant portion of this bill is going to these climate change measures. Uh, one of the things it does, and you kind of mentioned this, is it makes, makes changes to the transportation se- section of our economy by investing in electric vehicles and public transit. So creating more public transit systems, Uh, focusing on electric vehicles. Making uh, electric school buses is one of the big things that they've been pushing. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. Uh, And then there's also a bunch of additional funding for FEMA, for the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, sort of these disaster response agencies, because, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but we have had a lot of climate disasters in the last 10 years uh, we just had one in California that's actually still going on. The fires this year were terrible, like really, really bad. We had one of the biggest fires in our history, um, and even just going back a few months, not in California, but you know, Texas's entire power grid melt- melted down this year, basically, or froze because it was so cold in Texas. Currently, Louisiana is dealing with Hurricane Ida. Like, you can keep you know, naming thing after thing after thing. There was a really bad earthquake in Haiti. And, you know, you might not be able to, I, I'm not sure about tracking all of these, like, si- on the science side to climate change. I have read studies about them being connected to this, these extreme weather patterns. So that makes sense to me. But I think that, sorry, Cass, you want to say something? No, I
2: was just going to agree with you. That's something that this article actually talks about, um, the growing acceptance of the reality of climate change has not translated into support for the one strategy that scientists have said in a major United States, United Nations report this week is imperative to avert an even more harrowing future, stop burning fossil fuels. So scientists are urging people to take this seriously and um, nip it in the bud. But again, as the article is stating, Republicans are wanting to spend billions to prepare communities to cope with extreme weather, but are trying to block the efforts to cut the emissions that are fueling the disasters in the first place. So that's that's a point of view that I would be surprised if Zach agrees with, but that's kind of what I'm interested in is hearing both sides of that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I have a couple of things. So n- number one is, you know, you, you guys were mentioning that we're having more and more extreme weather events, presumably because of man-made climate change. There's a study that's been done on this, actually, uh, that the Cato Institute did, and they said in the decade from 2004 to 2013, worldwide climate-related deaths, including droughts, floods, extreme temperatures, wildfires, and storms, plummeted to a level 88.6% below that of the peak decade, which was 1930 to 1939. And then it says by 2018, climate-related deaths had fallen further to 5,000 that year or a 99.9% decrease. So while there are maybe more extreme weather events, I haven't seen a a full report on whether or not that's the, you know, really true that we're seeing more now than the world has ever experienced. I am skeptical of that, but even so the deaths related to those extreme weather events are falling to 99.9% of what the most peak deaths were due to weather which was 30 to 39. So that's number one is I think if climate change is such a dramatic problem, which I am not saying that it's not a problem, but there are very few deaths of people due to extreme weather conditions. And and even the latest hurricane that came through in the South, just at the same time we were doing the whole Afghanistan thing, all of the infrastructure that was put in place after Katrina greatly improved the impact that that hurricane had on, on Louisiana. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing I want to say is that California is a state that's been run for like 30 years by Democrats, Democrat governor, Democrat, um, controlled, you know, house and and Senate at the state level. Um, you know, we do have very strong, uh, environmental regulations here in the state, but still we're having record number of fires. Like I don't, if this is such a big deal, why are we still seeing extreme weather events in California? It's been 30 years. There's no Republican opposition in the state to climate legislation. There's just not.
0: Okay. I think there's like so many things about what you said. I, I have lots of thoughts. So first of all, I mean, I, it took me like one second to look up a study that is talking about there being 5 million deaths an, annually from excess heat and excess cold due to these extreme temperatures. This is from a study from researchers in Australia and China. So I don't think it's that hard to find competing studies to how big of an impact the climate is on deaths. That's, that's not super convincing to me. I think that this is, we can trace this. And also we know that climate change affects like more vulnerable populations as well. So when we're talking about people who are really affected by extreme heat, extreme cold, some of these disasters, it's maybe not everyone in the United States, right? Like you're right, we have better infrastructure now for like Hurricane Ida, that's not true everywhere. And then as far as California goes, yeah, we've had climate policies for sure, but we're talking about global warming here. It's not just California warming. And the way the science works is we're doing emissions everywhere. It's not like just decreasing emissions in California is going to like decrease all of the emissions worldwide that would then mean we don't have climate effects in California just because of the legislation in California i mean that's just not even how the science works
1: i i can understand and appreciate that but that is not like what what about the wildfires though the wildfires are are i don't think there's been like a legitimate link between oh the earth has heated 1.5 degrees fahrenheit and so now we have crazy wildfires like I don't the
0: yeah the extreme heat does impact wildfires because when you have more moisture in the air when it's not as dry which is an impact of it being extra hot when you have really really high temperatures it drives the fires way more than it would otherwise and we also had really extreme winds this year as well and there were people saying during the fires firefighters and things saying we have never seen conditions like this you know it was so dry and so hot And so little moisture, like that, is driving the fire conditions. And so, you know, I don't see how that's not connected to, you know, higher temperatures.
1: Well, because the forests have been mismanaged. There's been a a very poor policy in terms of forest management for California that it's allowed tons of underbrush to take place, which just creates this nice little tinderbox for a fire. I mean, how many fires are started? Like, the fire has to start somehow.
0: Sure. Okay. So take that. I, I take that. And I still think higher temperatures cause worse fires. I feel like there is a direct line there. I, I don't I don't, I don't see how there's not a line there from there being higher temperatures driving higher if, fires.
1: Because if you had better forest management, you wouldn't have the opportunity for the fire to take off to begin with.
0: The fire the fires are still going to happen. It's not just forest management. I mean, these they happen because of lightning strikes and things like that.
1: We have a very long history of of knowing about forest management and environmental management. If we did nothing, which I think has kind of been the plan the last twenty years, you're going to create conditions for fires to grow. I feel like it's saying you give you leave candy on the kid for the on the table for a kid, and the kid eats the candy. You're like, well, of course he's going to eat the candy because it was there on the table. It's like, well, if you took precautionary measures and managed the forests better we wouldn't have record-breaking fires year over year because the forests wouldn't be in a ripe state for them to be the biggest fire.
0: Yeah. I mean, there were lots of climate like scientists talking about the fires being driven by climate change. So I'm listening to those scientists. I don't, I'm not denying that some of the, the management of the forest probably has an impact, but I don't, I just don't think that, I'm not going to discount the climate change aspects of that on the fires, and I mean I don't feel like we're going we're getting anywhere with this because we're we are literally talking in a circle right now about the fires. But take those aside, and let's just t- I mean if you just talk about extreme heat and extreme cold, there are effects of that too, right? Like power going out or um, not being able to get enough water to places. Like these are things that are real impacts as well. Like it doesn't have to be this sideline on like wildfires specifically.
1: Okay. I mean, that's, that's fine with me. I, I, I can, I can agree with that. How do you measure? The thing is, is that I don't deny that man is contributing to climate change, but what I don't see as being necessarily beneficial is because you can point to a study and I can point to a study that have contradictory information. This is why the discussion never goes anywhere. And this is why there is resistance is because how do we know who's right? And being right is important for this because we're proposing to spend trillions of dollars, which we already don't have.
0: Okay, so it sounds to me like you're now saying maybe you don't believe in climate change.
1: No, that's that's not. I've said, I think, three times now, I believe in climate change, but how are we making sure that we are spending the money proportionally correct due to all the, the different factors?
0: Uh okay.
1: It's $3.5 trillion. We're already like $22 trillion in debt. Where is this money coming from? How are we making sure that we have a future? Right. If if we okay, we spend the money, we save ourselves from climate change by reducing emissions, but then the the country goes bankrupt. You know, we hit we hit our targets, the rest of the world doesn't, we're still screwed.
0: Okay. So I think we need to back up real quick. I feel like we're both getting frustrated and heated. Do you feel that way?
1: I, I, yeah, I'm I'm a little, it's messy and I don't have any, like there's never a resolution to this. So I am frustrated and it's not with you.
0: Okay. So um, I, I kind of get what you're saying. I think I am having trouble with the, we don't know how big of a problem it is because when I'm looking at the weight of the scientific studies, it seems to me it's an obvious big problem that we do need to deal with immediately. And I think that the the report from the UN from earlier this summer that looked at 14,000 different studies, I mean, that's very convincing to me. And it very much said, this is something that we need to deal with right now. As far as the United States and not other countries, you know, focusing on this in the current moment, I think that we do need to recognize that what happens in the economy of the United States affects other countries greatly. Like we don't do a ton of our manufacturing here. A lot of that manufacturing happens in other countries. If we start manufacturing for solar panels and for wind panels for these other things that we need to do renewable energy, that affects the economies of other places in the world. So we actually can have a big impact on what other people, like what other countries end up doing just by shaping the way that we do our policies. And so I think that we need to recognize the impact that we can have there, even just on an economic level, and not step back from it. And I also think that if we want to be seen as a leader in this world, which we I think we clearly do, then we take the first step on this. You know, I don't, I don't think that there's a reason for us not to just because other countries aren't doing it with us right now. If we think that this is a big problem, which many people in the country do, wh- why not take the first step?
1: I mean, I think we've taken many steps. I I think it's I think it's reductionist to say that we haven't taken any steps. I think we I would say we've probably taken the most out of any country probably so far. You know, I think we we're very progressive in terms of our climate policy.
0: Well, I don't know about that. I mean, Australia incentivized solar panels and they made it much cheaper for just lay citizens to get solar panels on their houses. And now they have the cheapest energy like in the world. And so I don't know that it's true that we're like the most progressive on this. I actually think there's a lot of resistance to these policies. And when I talk about a first step, I agree that it's not like we've done nothing. Mm -hmm. But when I think about a first step, I think about a first extreme step. Like, uh, you know, if I'm going to get into a practicality of like what I think we need to be doing, I do think we need to reshape our economy around clean energy and not around fossil fuels. And that is to do that, you have to undo a lot of what we've already done because our infrastructure, our economy has been built on fossil fuels. And so I think we need to take extreme steps to transform that. And there's ways I think we could do that. But when we're talking about like practical measures here, if you wanna like talk about actual legislation or things that I think we could do to change, like to me, that's, that's the issue right there is changing what we rely on an economy, on our economy, like what's the real issue here it's an energy problem it's where do we get our energy from and right. if we can change that and change it into a renewable system which is going to take extreme effort and commitment but it's something we absolutely can do then i think that's where we need to be going
1: so i mean i i know we the united states has also incentivized solar panels too right that's something we did um where you can get a tax credit from the last few years, and, and I think it's through twenty twenty two, and I'd be surprised if it didn't get extended. So I know we've done that, and I, I hear what you're saying, Aaron, and I don't I don't disagree. And in fact, I found I found a study that's saying you know safest and cleanest sources of energy, and basically they're measuring it by um, death rate from accidents and air pollution, and then um, correspondingly to greenhouse gas emissions, and coal, oil. Are number one and two in in both regards so there's been more deaths because of coal and this is like talking about in terms of deaths per terawatt hour which is I don't even like an energy
0: I, measurement of some yeah, kind. yeah i can't even
1: conceptualize like how much energy that is i think it said something like it would be the energy required to power 124 homes in europe or something like that i don't know the duration anyway and then down at the bottom below coal and oil you have natural gas which is, you know, third in terms of
0: causing deaths,
1: emissions, Emissions. but, but fourth in terms of, of deaths, but then the the bottom of the, of this table, which is actually where you want to be, right? That means it's the bottom is the safest and the cleanest because the top is the most dangerous and the dirtiest hydropower, nuclear energy, wind, and solar hydropower is fifth nuclear energy is sixth wind is seventh and solar is eighth. So I actually I don't disagree that that we should be moving towards these alternative methods of power because clearly on a pure safety you know lives lost you know as a direct and pollution
0: result. yeah and, mm-hmm. and
1: pollution of course I mean I I I'm not going to debate at all that that is a better route to take than fossil fuels I think where I have a rub is that if this is something that's mandated by the government it will result in more instability than if the economy moves there on its own. And I think that naturally the economy will move there on its own. I think that if you look at the popularity of these various alternative sources of energy, they are more prevalent now than they have been before in the past. So I think my stance is is that we're going to get there. And I think that by mandating it and imposing harsher measures or penalties, um, carbon taxes, you know, these types of things. I don't think that that is the best strategy for us to get there quicker. And I realize part of the reason why this is such a contentious issue is because there is the time limit on the issue that if X doesn't happen by Y date, then here are the consequences. So I get that that's like a constraint that I maybe don't have the luxury of seeing, you know, my strategy play out because if I am incorrect and the economy takes, you know, 200 years to get to the point that the scientists say we should be at in 20, then it doesn't really matter. And I lose. So I I get that that's a, um, a problem.
0: So, yeah, I, I think that you, you identified the problem right? It's, it's too slow. It's it's not going to happen fast enough. And that's why we can't just wait on the market. And I mean, even waiting on the market, even putting in a carbon tax, which you said you maybe don't agree with, that's still a market solution, right? And even that, that's going to be too slow. It's a carbon tax. And it. I, you mentioned solar panels before and, and subsidizing them. And I just wanted to mention like solar panels, the, the interest rates for solar panels if you're trying to get one, are at 12%, when the market, which is the market rate, when we give fossil fuel companies state-backed interest loans for infrastructure at two or 3%, like we still incentivize fossil fuels beyond, uh, you know, renewable energy. So even if there's some of these, you know, methods, like clearly we are still having a priority in the United States. And I think that's a problem. And as far as, you know, the economy goes, like when we're, I don't think we can just rely on an economic solution here, because when you look at our history and the things that we've responded to, some of the greatest periods of growth and innovation in the United States, they were not market solutions. So for instance, in World War II, pre-World War II, we had made two airplanes a year, like, right, very few airplanes a year. We joined the war by the end of World War II, four years, we had made 300,000 airplanes. Like it is doable for us to take this step. We can be this innovative, like we can make this change. And yeah, it was, you know, we spent a lot of money during World War II, but the longest, the yeah, the longest prolonged period of growth in the American economy was the result of the investments that we made in World War II. That was not just like a market solution that was happening there. I mean, that was specific legislation about investing in these types of technologies that we needed for the war. And I think that that is like one of the ways that we could look at this. You know, we're we're looking at like that level of investment in trying to reshape our economy to be doing this. And I think it's important to consider all of the technologies we have. Like we have the technology to be able to do this right now. We could go renewable. We just have to do, we have to do the push to do it. And if you switch to renewables, you only need about half the energy that we use today. That's how efficient they are. And so if we really just buckled down and did it, the long-term payoffs are, are could be like astronomical. And the, um, the Electric Power Research Institute had a little bit of a calculation on this. This was from a 2011 study. And it talks about modernizing the electric grid, so switching it to a more renewable path it could cost 476 billion which is a huge amount of money yet reap 2 trillion in benefits i mean like we're talking about a trade off here it's not just oh we put this money in and it's just like sunk forever and our country is just down the drain i mean like this you can do this in a way that's smart where we are studying the economics of it as well but i think that there are many you know good for not even just good reasons to do it there's practical reasons to do it and there's ways that you can do it where you can be more efficient about it but i do think it has to be a huge lift like i really do it can't just filtering this stuff in over time i don't think that's going to be enough and there's inertia right now like i said before we're pushing back against decades of policy supporting fossil fuels. And so mm-hmm. we can't just do it slowly because then we're spending decades, you know, instituting policies for clean energy.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that those are those are good points, Aaron. I will say that I don't think that the government should be picking and choosing favorites. I think that, you know, even is, I don't like the idea that the government is saying to anybody, honestly i I think it's a I think it's very presumptuous that the government feels like it knows better in terms of what is best for the nation and I, I've just become more and more um firm on this <laughs> belief as time goes on because I don't think that you know who's who is to say that the government should be giving a two percent interest rate for oil and gas but a 12 percent for solar panels that feels like the government is, Bureaucracy is involved. There's lobbying. There's interests that are picking and choosing favorites, and I don't think that that's correct. I don't think that's right for oil and gas. I don't think it's right for agriculture. I don't think that's right just kind of out of the gate. But I was just online today and and seeing that there's like some new product that is a table a a, a countertop composter that can compost like a plastic phone if the phone is made out of like the right materials. You can throw your phone case, sorry, not phone, but the phone case in the composter or plastic bags or whatever, and you push a button and I don't know, Merlin comes in and like waves his wand and then you have dirt. Like I see, I see crazy innovations all the time that I think are amazing and honestly feel like magic to me. I saw another one with some woman, I think in Africa developed a way to turn like plastic bags into something that's stronger than brick. And so I that's why I think that that we do the market can innovate for this stuff. I mean, Elon Musk didn't get a mandate to by the government to go and make like a super successful electric car. Um, you know, I I don't disagree that war does spur innovation, right? Like there is a need for creativity when you are in a crunch. Um but I don't, I just, again, I, I don't like the idea. And, and this is, you know, maybe this isn't even a climate thing for me, but this is just a, you know, a philosophy thing for me. I don't like the idea that the government's going to come in and, and say all of you people that work in fossil fuels, like we are going to like get rid of your job and institute you to be something else within the next, you know, five years. And, and you no longer work for uh, Exxon. But now you work for, I don't know any solar or wind power company names. But like, to me, that feels anti-freedom. That feels like it's it's dictating, you know, where you're going to work. And I, I have a problem with that. And, you know, regarding the carbon tax thing, like you said, I think we're taxed enough, dude. I think like...
2: Aha, it comes back.
1: <laughs> I I mean, there's new taxes all the time. Like, we're taxed for every single thing we do. And I look around and I'm like, where is all this money going? I see failures in our government all the time. And so I have a problem giving up more money and having people give up more money to fund an organization that is ineffective and at times like harmful. Like,
0: I don't know that we need to go off on that because like, sorry, I just think that's like a little bit beside the point. I get what you're saying. There's failures in government, right? Like that's your point.
1: And, and the failures, the failures I said earlier, it's zero sum, right? Like if I give more of my government to or more, more of my money to the government, it means that I have less money to spend on myself. And I don't think that by saying, oh, we're just going to tax the rich more or we're going to tax uh, corporations more to pay for this stuff, like that stuff, prices go up and then the middle class pays and we and we can't afford it you know as much as we could. So that's why I have an issue with this is because we're already taxed upwards of 60% of our income in some cases.
2: At least you're honest. You went straight for it. it. Took us a while to get there, but I feel like that's the honest truth of what a lot of people feel. I think it's a bad plan, but I think that's the honest truth of what people feel.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this is not, this is an ideological issue of what the government should be doing. This is really not even about climate change, it seems like it's just, but here's, here's the problem with, I think that like that line of thinking, and this is just a broader comment on regulation in general. It's, I don't trust us enough. And I don't trust the free market to protect people because the free market incentivizes greed. It incentivizes us to step on each other. And I don't think that, okay, you're, you like, are disagreeing with that. He's shaking his head at me and smiling. Um, but you know, if we don't have regulations about the kinds of like drugs that we can market, right? The kind Like what gets put in our food, what I think, like what kind of energy we have, like if we can pollute rivers or not, like I think those regulations help keep us safe and that it's really important to have them. And that if we're not telling people, no, you can't dump nuclear waste down a river they're going to dump nuclear waste down a river because that's the easiest way to get rid of it like it's i think that we need this we need this infrastructure in place and you know that goes to like literally just a bottom line ideological feeling about what the government does what we think it can do i want to say one more thing about this before i let you respond is that i don't think that we're talking about the government a lot And I think you started this by saying like, I don't like the government telling me like what energies we should use. I just want to clarify, like, I don't think this is just about the government telling us that this is a worldwide issue. Like there are other countries who are talking to us about this. There are scientists who are talking to us about this. This isn't just about the government being like, oh, you know, I want to like incentivize this because it's like good for me. Like this is a bigger issue than just that.
1: I would disagree with your take on the market and the expediency of like path of least resistance. I don't think I'm naive enough to just say that the market doesn't incentivize greed. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that, that, that is, is true. The market does incentivize people to come up with ideas, to be innovative, to capture the market in pursuit of making money and you know, a lot of money at that. But I don't think that that feels too binary to me either. The market is incentivizing greed or the government is instituting regulation. I think that people aren't self-interested to the point of self-destruction. You're you're not gonna be dumping nuclear waste in the river these days because for a variety of factors, but one of them being that somebody's gonna find out and then nobody's gonna want to do business with you. I mean, look at the BP oil spill that happened. Like BP took a huge hit because people perceive them as being irresponsible with their practices and their regulations and and that hurt them economically. So I don't think that it's just, oh, if there's no regulation, people are going to do immoral things. I think that 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 is still a market force that's weighing on them where they realize we can't just dump nuclear waste or pollute or whatever, because especially nowadays, people are gonna know. Um, And I think that again, kind of going back to what we're talking earlier, like I think it, I just do have a different, take on like the philosophy of government because if we look to the government to keep us safe for every single thing then we don't have a life there's no there's no freedom in that if the government just says here's what you can eat here's what you can drink here's where you can walk the the regulations are so vast that it, it eliminates the the choice for personal freedom and i think the people in government aren't you know, oracles. They're not Im- imbibed or or they don't obtain any special powers. Like they are still made up of people you, like you and me. And especially these agencies are are not even elected positions. It's part of the bureaucracy. And so I think that if you have people in there that are have a particular ideological bent, they're going to advocate for policies that are along their beliefs. And it's not elected. We don't get the chance to remove those. So I don't even think that we're getting the chance to like vote on this as a nation. I think it's just, what's up Cass.
2: I just, I think that something you just said, I I lost the first part of it, but I think that we did elect these people to vote for us. Oh, you said they're not oracles and they don't have all like the magic answers and the perfect information. Um, They do though. They have all the scientists and the data and the research over, you know, decades at this point. And I think that that is why we elected people. We're- we're, we have elected officials that we've said, these are the people that we think are going to make the best, the best, most informed decisions for all of us, the constituents. And I think it's a little naive. Some of what you're saying, that's fine. The ground of what I'm trying to say is I think we asked those people, like we voted those people in, we asked them to take all the information and to make the right call. And I think the right call is investing in this. And there are lots of things that the government invests in our military presence and weapons and all sorts of things that we've decided that some people decided are worth huge sums of money. I think this is worth huge sums of money. Some people don't.
0: Yeah. And I like, I agree with Cass, sorry, real quick, Zach, with as far as like our, who we're electing. One of the things that Trump said during his, uh, Sorry, I'm distracted by Cassie talking. to. Sorry, Dallas my
2: dog is being a very good
1: boy. <laughs> Go ahead.
0: I'm just saying, One of the things that Trump tweeted was that climate change was a hoax that China created, right? Like that's not someone that I'm going to vote for. Like climate change is a really important issue to me. And it's not the only important issue, but it's up there in my like, most important issues. So I'm not going to vote for people who don't, like really want to push climate change policy, like that's really important. So I think Cassie's right to say that, like, yeah, we are like voting for this, and also that we have research and science behind it. It's not just these, you know, like trying to figure out what's what's true and what's not. Like this is backed by science.
1: I will, I'm not saying that it's not, you know, there's not scientific data behind it, but we didn't elect the bureaucracy bureaucrats in the EPA like we elect the president we elect you know our our state and and reps and senators but the people making the regulations at the EPA are not elected they're like lifelong people that work there as bureaucrats um those people are not elected like maybe a few of the head positions are but for most people that work in the government it's just a job that's goes on in perpetuity regardless of who staffs the head of the administration and so i think that that Honestly, I think that that is where a lot of our like day to day comes from, rather than like the president or something. Like it's it's the it's the perpetual like administrative state that I think has a bigger impact in our lives than you know electing a, a president or something like that.
0: Yeah, I think that's sort of true. Definitely, the administrative state is a big deal. Um, super interesting. All like admin law is like EPA law because of how much. Like legislation, there is about this stuff, but um, you know, tr- when Trump became president, he removed like four or five of the heads that worked in the EPA. Like, it's—I don't think it's true to say that presidents don't have an influence on how these agencies make decisions, right? Like, he put in people who agreed with him, and then Biden came in, and he's going to put it, has put in, or I haven't—I haven't checked where his you know appointments are or mm-hmm. who's who he's putting where, but like. Yeah, presidents have an impact on this stuff, particularly when you're talking about climate change. Like the EPA, like we mentioned, is one of the most important agencies. Like, it does it does actually trickle down, like, what they regulate and what they don't and how much they focus on certain things and others. Like, that is policy that is set, you know, from where the president is. And so I don't think it's true to say that that is like not impacted and that our votes there don't matter. I think they they absolutely do, especially when you talk about climate change. And another thing I wanted to mention just about like the economic aspect of it, is that, you know, the arsenal of World War II, our response to the Great Depression, NASA, and the Apollo missions, like these are non-economic things. These are you know, they are things that our government pushed. And then there were, you know, economic responses to it. Like it did not make sense to have NASA to like go on missions to the moon. That wasn't an economic decision. And yet we did it and it was huge innovation, huge research and development, something I don't think that we regret doing. And it wasn't driven by the free market. I think that we can look at these examples of when the government did get involved and we have, uh, and, and it's not this economic thing. I think when you over-focus on the market and economics, you get so tied to that that you just can't break out of being able to see other areas that maybe don't make the most financial sense up front, but end up having these like good consequences for us. And America has led the world in changing, you know, the rules of markets. We don't have to do things the way that we've done them before. We have these... We have different financial mechanisms that we've created. I mean, we created the the mortgage, we created car loans. Like these are these are a financial way of incentivizing certain things. Like we can do that with clean energy too. We just haven't pushed that step. And so I think that there's options here, both economic and non-economic, but that it's something that truly does need this this warlike effort to to get us to a place where we like need to go as far as clean energy goes.
1: Your point is well made about, you know, World War II and and NASA and everything like that, but I think eventually sooner or later like the laws of economics are going to come home to roost in the United States and we're already, you know, our spending is already approaching what our GDP is. Like we're we're in we're already in a pretty dire financial situation. I I know we like to think that we're we're not as a country that we can just keep printing money and spending money and and I think that that only works until the United States isn't the world's leading superpower. You know, I think that once, you know, the yen becomes the predominant mode of currency for the world, our somebody's going to want to come and collect on our debt and we have a significant amount of debt. The situation that we came out of World War II with being only one of a handful of nations that actually had an economy still, like I mentioned in the Afghanistan episode, like Europe had its entire infrastructure destroyed there was hardly any economy compared to what it used to be because the nation was destroyed everybody had to do business with us we were in effect leading kind of a or benefiting from a you know pseudo-monopoly in terms of of economics at that time um where there wasn't anything that we couldn't do because everybody had to buy from us that's not the case anymore like china is a huge economic force Russia still has play. Like the um, European Union still is very profitable now. I mean, productive. Um, I I think that while I don't disagree that that the effort that you're suggesting would require government, you know, to lead the way on that, I don't think that that we can support that as a nation in terms of of the kind of spending that would require us to get there. And. I, I'm just severely skeptical of that. I, I get what you're saying that you can get lost in the, in the finances of everything. And that can, you know, cloud the other things, but everything does have to be paid for. And i I just, I don't know that that that's a loan that the country can afford to make at this point.
0: Okay. I think that you, you would have to redistribute for sure right? Like you have to pull from some other areas. We have to figure out like exactly how we want to go about this. And I don't think that it's necessarily just, oh, we're just going to continue debt, right? Like there's not there's not a lot of appetite for that if you're going to try and get enough people on board to want to do something like this. So yeah, I think that we, we probably need to think about like what makes sense in terms of, is it that we decrease some of our military budget? Is it that we you know, redistribute some other place. Like, I think that's fine to ask that question and, and to pull it in. Um, and that that's an important thing to talk about. I also think that it's, this is one of those things where I think you can trace better than some other investments, the payoffs. Like we just, renewable energy, if we become a more efficient nation, there is financial payoff from that. And so I you know I think that yeah it's me may, it's maybe a lot up front but over time again this is one of those things that is going to pay off for us. And I I wanted to mention something that you talked about at the very beginning which was how we talk about climate policy and in this very defeatist doomsday kind of way. And while I think that there the reason for that is that people want other people to take it seriously and talk about like, yeah, this is a problem we really need to solve and that there's urgency behind it. I don't know that that's motivating people to do something about it. I think you're right about that. Instead, I think we need to focus on this positive future of success. You know, Having a world where we have less respiratory problems because there's less pollution is a good thing. If we focus on that, if we focus on okay, well, we don't have to burn natural gas in our houses and risk fires and explosions. Like Those sorts of things are good things to focus on. And I think that we can also reframe haha, the way that we talk about this so that it can be in this more incentivized way and not just this doomsday. Because, And that's also true. That's not, that's not disingenuous to say that we could have a better society if we invest in these technologies.
2: I love it. I think that's a good place to wrap. I think so too. Except
0: Zach looks dissatisfied maybe.
1: No, no, I, this is not my favorite.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's like me with the voting one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't like it. It goes against my nature. And so I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, don't institute climate policy on me. Like it's like a bait and switch of like the government tells me to do something. And so I'm like, no, don't do it. Even if it's good. I mean, that's
2: important to note. In yourself. Right?
1: I, I'm not against solar power. I'm not against wind. I I think. I'm not know,
2: against wind. <laughs>
1: I'm not against wind. Except when it gets something in my eye. I'm a little like, I'm against, against
2: wind. Get out like, of here, wind.
1: Nuclear is super efficient and like pretty much safe. Like we should use nuclear. Yeah. So it's like, there's just like this kind of resistance because of the mandate. That's it. Talking about it today has been more like revealing for me of my stance on it.
0: Got it. I mean, I actually learned a lot about the different kinds of technologies that we could use for climate policy during this episode. And I feel very heartened by it, actually, that I, I think this technology exists. I think that we can, I feel more positive than I felt in a while. And I just because I think we could do this. If we wanted to put the push behind this, I think we could do it.
1: So, in conclusion, then, Aaron, mm-hmm. I, I won't say anything afterwards. What does it look like then if the United States were to do this? We did the heavy lifting, we led the way. What does the country look like in 2050?
0: I think that our power grid is really different, that it's all uh, electric and we have solar panels on everything, including cars, houses. This is a local plus a national effort. So it's gonna have to be all, all over the place, basically. We run on solar power and so we have cleaner energy, we have more renewable energy, we have less pollution, we have more safety. Hopefully we have more equality because we know that pollution, these sorts of things affect um, vulnerable populations more. I think that we are looking at potentially a much brighter future.
1: Is it is it just solar? Is it like solar and wind and nuclear? and Oh, yeah. Sorry.
0: I think solar is the one I think about because it's easier to put to decentralize solar. You mm-hmm. can decentralize it. And so everyone is involved. It goes to a local level and like a personal level, if you're talking about putting solar panels on cars and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But yes, wind energy, I think nuclear is probably going to be part of it as well there. We get a lot of good um, power from, from nuclear energy. And like you mentioned, it's fa- it's fairly safe if you do it the right way and you're in a stable place. So yeah, I think we have all of these technologies working together to just change our energy system so that mm-hmm. we're, we're using this energy and not other energy.
1: So no fossil fuels, like cars don't run on gasoline. I uh, think that
0: would be the ideal. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. cars should run on electricity, the batteries,
1: but like trucks and stuff like towing, even them.
0: Have yeah. you seen Elon Musk new truck?
1: I saw the, weird. It was like
0: the Batmobile looking the thing.
1: Geometric truck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. I don't
0: like that. Um, the poly- so someone else, <laughs> someone will redesign that okay. so that it actually looks like a truck still, and, uh, yeah, have, have one of those.
2: Yeah. Careful. You're going to piss off every single American who drives an F-150. I know. <laughs> <of> America, Aaron, <laughs> come on. You're trying to kill America.
1: Actually, no. actually my, my buddy, um, shout out to my friend Tyler. He's talking about getting a new I don't remember what it's called, but it's it's the new Ford electric truck, Wow. Um, and it doesn't look bad. Uh, it gets like I don't know thirty or forty on the highway. I'm like, it's pretty good right, for a truck, yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So maybe that's uh, what'll get people jumping on board. Is, as long as they get a good truck out of the whole thing.
1: <laughs> it helped convince me because right now I need to tow a trailer. So if if my electric vehicle can't <laughs> tow my my trailer, I'm not, I'm not jumping over. All right. Well, thanks for sharing, Aaron. I appreciate the insight into what our future will look like. Cause I think it will look like that eventually.
2: Thanks as always for listening, everybody. I know it was kind of a, kind of a ride, but isn't it always, um, I think you can tell when we come in and we're a little bit like, ah, uh, we don't know everything, but we want to be honest with you and with each other as always, like this is not, we didn't, like, we intentionally don't call these debates. They're not meant to be. We're not scientists. I mean, as we say every single time, we're not war experts. We're not climate scientists. Like we will tell you full out every time, because we don't think that only those people have thoughts and feelings and opinions. And we don't think that only those people are the privileged ones who should be able to talk about things. So thanks for bearing with us as we kind of muddle through our feelings and, you know, strongly debate sometimes. And, um, Yeah. We hope you join us next time.
1: That should be our tagline. The reframers podcast. We are not experts.
2: We are not experts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's important though. It's important to be able to say when you don't know.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's like one of the tenants of of us having these discussions is being like, I don't know, or I was wrong. So yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, again, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you all next time.
1: Thank you for listening to The Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode.
0: You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ReframersPod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com.